1: A leader in her field at such a young age, married to her dream man, she had no way of knowing her husband's romantic past would destroy the future they were planning together. After she was brutally murdered at home, the delay of justice was lengthy, but her family never gave up hope. A tenacious criminalist, two dedicated cold case detectives, and one dangerous cop who ended up on the wrong side of the interrogation table. This week's episode is The Murder of Sherry Rasmussen. thanks to our patreon subscribers that they're getting into a tier for voting on this actually last month our july episode we got a split decision we had a uh it was divided between two we had a tie for the first time so we covered one last month and then saved this one for y'all this month that's apparently how we decide tiebreakers
3: who knew? Just, we, did, we
1: figured it out on this last we're one. like, we will do both. Everybody wins here. Mm-hmm. But seriously, it was uh, looking at the case, this case, we definitely knew we wanted to cover it and wanted to give it the due attention that it deserved. So it worked out to do it in August when because we finished traveling. So we were able to really dig into this one. There's a couple of appeals decisions. There's criminal, civil, uh, tons of facts and evidence and a decades-long search for justice. So it really was something that... We are glad that you all voted on because it's a a story to be told, certainly.
3: Yeah, it's always a sensational story when a cop is involved. Someone that's supposed to serve and protect is actually the most dangerous of all. I'd never heard of this case until we started doing this, and it's troubling. It's unsettling. Yeah, definitely to see how uh, the, the system works and in many
1: cases doesn't work. So, yeah, yeah we and I, like all the cases we cover, you start to get an affinity for the the players in the case and the Rasmussens, Nelson Nels Loretta, you just feel for them. Her sister Teresa, you feel for her. Definitely Sherry is a – they have, you know, home videos. Of course, this was back in the 80s, so not a ton of video. But what you do have, you just – you get very, uh, I get, I get, at least personally get very endeared to the family and getting very endeared to people um, and watching them go through what they went through. It's incensing. It's, it's very frustrating mm-hmm. and hearing that what what they were told in the investigation and things is, uh, you will go on an emotional journey with us today. All all that to say, it would get you happy, not eventually happy, sad, irritated, shocked, not so shocked whenever you see how the system goes sometimes. So uh, thank you to our patrons, all that to say for uh, voting on this topic.
3: Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Sherry Ray Rasmussen was born February 7th, 1957 in Walla Walla, Washington. She was the second of three daughters for Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. Described as beautiful and brilliant by her family. Sherry skipped several grades and entered Loma Linda University at the young age of 16 to study nursing. According to her father, she had a goal of elevating the stature of nursing in the country. Sherry graduated college at 20 and by 27 had ascended to the level of Director of Critical Care Nursing at Glendale Adventist Hospital, where she lectured internationally on nursing best practices. Going to college at 16 is... Uh, a feat in and of itself Yeah, it's a
1: very impressive And having a singular goal That you're focused on it, doing it And achieving it already at age 20 And then not just Oh, well, I just sort of work at it I mean, she
3: was like, I'm going to be at the top of my like 27. field 27, and- she wasn't even 30 And she was the director Her dad was a dentist, so she kind of grew up In the mm-hmm. medical, you know, in- environment But they were extremely proud parents As they should have mm-hmm. been In the summer of 1984, Sherry met 24-year-old engineer John Rutten, a tall, attractive former athlete. According to Vanity Fair, John was just as smitten with Sherry as she was with him. In awe of his new girlfriend, the pair fell in love quickly and deeply. Prior to his relationship with Sherry, John had been in an on-again, off-again relationship with a UCLA classmate named Stephanie Lazarus. Over the course of several years, from 1981 to 1984, the pair had sex 20 to 30 times, according to court records. Lazarus later admitted John never considered her his girlfriend, and she never considered him her boyfriend. I wonder if that was a one-sided uh, uh, labeling of the relationship. By all accounts, I strongly feel that, yes, that she was much more into him than her and considered them much more serious. She was very good friends with his family and kept in touch with them even after they kind of went their separate ways, which Oh yeah, his siblings. Yeah, I've never yeah. and his parents. I've never done that with any of <laughs> my exes. No. So, no. yeah, it was um, you know, and as we'll see, I think she was definitely more into him than she he was into her. Upon graduating from college, Lazarus became a Los Angeles police officer. She and John were no longer seeing each other. However, she remained fixated on him for years. For his part, John never mentioned Lazarus to Sherry. This made things awkward when Lazarus decided to throw John a surprise 25th birthday party. That's when Lazarus found out her long-term fling had moved on with someone else. Having been close to John's family, a heartbroken Stephanie wrote a letter to his mom, which read in part, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't
1: end the way it did, but I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. That's so
3: cringe.
1: Yeah. If you think about, yeah, you show up and it's like a surprise birthday party, and he comes in holding hands with his new girlfriend. And not just any girlfriend. I mean, he's... Deeply in love with her. They were very smitten with each other. She's very accomplished. They said an article, the Vanity Fair article that did a deep dive into it said John was just very impressed with her and like with Sherry in general and very proud of her. And so I imagine if you were the girl that he hooked up with that didn't want to ever label it as a girlfriend, didn't want to tell people they're dating, and then now is like very happy to be in this relationship and very proud of who he's dating. I can imagine that hurts even worse, especially when you try – trying these things, trying to throw him a birthday party, trying to be friends with his family, try
3: to ingratiate yourself in his life, and it's not working. I think that they were definitely dating. I don't think he kept that a secret. I just don't think he was, you know, he wasn't going to marry her.
1: Yeah, that's why they were just like, oh, we just, yeah, we're like all part of the same friend group and we hook up. They were, yeah, that's what she's like. Well, we were never boyfriend or girlfriend. We just, we spend time together.
3: You know, we go out. I think... It's bizarre that he wouldn't have told her that he was seeing someone, especially if he's going to be bringing her to a party she's throwing for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a surprise party, so maybe he didn't know what he was just showing up at home,
3: and he brings his girlfriend home and is like, oh, I didn't know you were throwing this. Yeah. It's uh, very awkward, too, that she sent a letter to his mom. That's bizarre. If I had received a letter like that, um I don't know if I would have known what to do with it, and I would die first before sending a letter like that. Do not send a
1: letter like that. Um, I had a friend who was dating a person. They broke up, and then he sent me a letter and was like, "I want you, just want you to pass this info onto her." And I was like, "No, we're not doing." I mean, I said, "Hey, I got a letter. Do you want to know what's in it?" And
3: she said, "No," and I was like, "Damn, I, I don't know if I'd have that kind of willpower. I would probably say yes, and then wouldn't I do read anything." It first, with so I was it. like. It's the same shit, different day. Yeah, it's, it's not just worth on it. paper. It's the same shit they've been saying. In May of nineteen eighty five, John and Sherry got engaged. Since Sherry thought a ring wasn't practical, John gave her a BMW instead. A month later, Lazarus found out about the engagement and was distraught. Upset and crying, she called John and begged him to come over. He agreed, and when he arrived, a still sobbing Stephanie told him she was in love with him. She begged him repeatedly to have sex with her. And despite being engaged to Sherry, John agreed. He later said he did this to give Stephanie closure. Yeah, this that's guy, I'm gonna just gonna it. say it up top.
1: I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, mistakes were made. and I think in the, the, he, I think he's looks- just
3: he, he throughout all of this, um is doesn't have much of a backbone isn't willing to stand up to someone who's causing problems in his new, allegedly happy relationship. I mean, anyone that says, well, I had to sleep with my ex for closure. What what does that mean? First of all, how does that give anybody closure? That makes it worse. That opens it up more. It makes it so much worse. Well,
1: and I think either, I mean, I think you definitely should have stood up to her way, way, way sooner. But also, do you also like the attention of women fighting over him? Yeah, anyone? I that's what
3: I'm saying. I don't think I think he um did not do what he should have done in any of these instances and downplayed the severity to which he knew that she was into him and yeah. began to cause problems with he and Sherry.
1: Yeah, and especially if you're Sherry and you start dating a guy and you're like he's great, he's a single guy, he's awesome, and you don't know that he very recently has been hooking up and then during the course of your relationship Hooks up with his ex. that, And ha, she has this weird fixation on him that he does not nip it in the bud. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'll go over there. She's upset and crying. It's like, there's two
3: people in this relationship. And it's either y'all two or us mm-hmm. two, but it ain't all three of us. After the engagement, Sherry noticed someone following her. She told her father it was a woman in disguise. Dressed like a boy. According to 48 Hours. Sherry said that the person had... Eyes that could penetrate you and would make you think that they could see right through you. There was one person she knew with eyes like that, Stephanie Lazarus. Sherry's friend and co-worker, Peggy Crabtree, told 48 Hours, John's ex-girlfriend kept appearing in places that Sherry would go. She couldn't go out
1: to the store or the gym without having this woman show up. Sherry was clearly fearful and unhappy that she just couldn't get this person out of her life.
3: I think that she showed up a lot more than probably Sherry told anybody.
1: Yeah. One, I think, too, if she's in disguise, you're like, I sound like I'm wild. That I'm like, I think I'm being stalked by my mm-hmm. fiance's ex-girlfriend who's wearing, like, who's in a costume. In and a costume. Me. You'd be like. Surely, who's also a Los Angeles police yeah, officer. that part like, is the
3: kicker right there.
1: The kicker that you're like, a professional person is now in a disguise following me around. You're like, surely. Surely this surely can't be not be happening. But those eyes, 100%. Oh like. N- Nels Rasmussen was like when my daughter told me that and then later when I saw a picture of Lazarus I said I knew exactly what Sherry was talking about eyes that could penetrate you and would make you think they could see right through you Stephanie Lazarus had eyes like that whenever it said they could penetrate you and make you think they could see right through you that is Stephanie Lazarus two a T she you has see those photos. wild
3: wide-eyed eyes in Very, the yeah. interrogation videos of her in the courtroom photos of her she um she looks unhinged. Yes, it's um interesting that she went into a career at, as a police officer because she doesn't have a um she doesn't seem to have that kind of uh air about her, the mannerisms that a that a cop normally possesses.
1: Well, when you see videos of her, she does seem sort of uh, I'll say like easygoing, but f- several accounts said that she had a very uh violent temper mm-hmm. that she would get pissed off, freak out, slam down her hand, want to yell, want to like get in people's face. So if you have, maybe that's like a position of authority. If you feel kind mm-hmm. of like powerless in life, you want to take up a position of authority and be like, listen to me, I'm going to take you to jail because you otherwise feel like your life's out of control. I don't know. I mean, she was a
3: police officer before this all started. So it yeah. could just be personality trait wise. Her friends in college said they were... Surprised but not shocked because she was very athletic and um one of her friends said that they would watch, you know, true crime movies and stuff together, and Stephanie would always be able to figure out the end, and her friend would wonder, How did you figure all that out? So maybe her brain was just wired that way. Problem solving, yeah, something like that. Two run ins were particularly disturbing. First, a provocatively dressed Lazarus made a scene at the hospital where Sherry worked, telling Sherry in front of co-workers, If I can't have John, you can't either. before she was removed by security. When Sherry went home and told John of the incident, he confessed to the sexual encounter with Lazarus, though Sherry said she already knew. So I took this
1: to mean that Lazarus came up there and said, by the way, y'all were engaged and we hooked up. Yes. Yeah. And told her. And but the yeah, the coworker said it was so bizarre and awkward that this woman shows up,
3: asks for Sherry, and I mean, like multi- short shorts and a tube top. Probably by all accounts, they said to show off her very toned physique. Yeah, flex. Yeah, and just went up there and said, "You know,
1: you're Don't worry. Another thing that Sherry had told her dad this crazy thing happened and that Stephanie Lazarus said Oh, don't worry. When your marriage inevitably fails, I'll be there to pick up the
3: pieces and just would not leave. And they had like, you're a police. I could not imagine in a trillion years doing something like this. The thought of doing this is so unbelievable to me, especially when you're somewhat of a public figure. I would be so worried that it would get back to my department that John would find out maybe shouldn't care if he did that. My family would find out and I'd be, you know, run out of town for shame. I just it's it's weird that more people didn't know what was going on. It's a very bizarre
1: lack of judgment to think that that's appropriate to I mean, at least she wasn't wearing her police uniform when she did that. I don't think she necessarily thought it was okay to do I mean, she was compul—like it was like a compulsion. She like had to She's, do it. Yeah,
3: I, I, but I'm. It's bizarre to me that um. Her for her coworkers and stuff didn't know about this. As public as she, it wasn't a secret how she was behaving.
1: Yeah, like her her fellow LAPD officers. Yeah, yeah. I, and maybe some of them were like, you know, cool it. I don't know, but yeah, that was not in anything I read that they were aware, or maybe she was really good at hiding it, and she just did all this shit on her off
3: days. In another terrifying incident, Sherry arrived home to her condo one night to find Lazarus in her full LAPD uniform, standing in the living room area. John was not there and Sherry had no idea how Lazarus had gotten in. There was a verbal altercation that left Sherry afraid. After this encounter, Sherry insisted it was time for John to stand up to his persistent ex. Instead, John told Sherry it was best to just ignore Lazarus and eventually she would go away
1: are you kidding me that you get home and there is a person with
3: a gun and a uniform standing in your living room? And you're like, <laughs> that <laughs> did you get I assume doesn't have a key to their house. So unless you left the door open, I don't know how that got in. I think um, some picking of locks most likely took place. She also, during this time, Lazarus had a roommate that was, Another police officer, and in later testimony, he said that she would come home and talk about how she he knew of John and that mm-hmm. God they got engaged. I'm so upset. you know I mean, it, like his her sounding board essentially. Mm-hmm. so there were at least some friends and coworkers True. that knew of this relationship and kind of how she felt about it. That's true. And you wonder if she said, I'm going to go over there in my uniform and if
1: they go, yeah, go do that or like, oh, no, don't do that. Because, I mean, this yeah. is borderline. You're now misusing your position to oh, yeah. intimidate somebody. I mean, this is like a huge violation of, I'm assuming, of department policy to the point of like this is violating someone's civil right. You can't come in somebody's house Mm-mm. and try to act like, I mean, the implication
3: of being in that uniform is that it's like within the what scope are you going to duties. Yeah. You to yeah. call the cops. I am a cop. What are you going to do? That's so scary. Sherry confided in her parents that Lazarus had been harassing her and stopping by her in John's apartment unannounced. Nels was concerned for his daughter and thought John was weak for not doing more to shut it down. I would agree. Hard and Nels agree. and Loretta lived in Arizona, and Sherry and John lived in
1: California. So I'm sure it's frustrating. You're getting calls from your daughter going, this and this is happening. You're like, man, if I
3: was there, I, I would—you would, know, the parent mode kicks in, right? Like- Nels didn't even— he wasn't on board with John from the beginning. He thought that his daughter was too good for him and that she um, that he could do a, she could do a lot better. And then this starts happening and he's like, what? You're just going to mm-hmm. let this ex come in and do all of this stuff. Be, you know, get a backbone, stand up to her, shut it down. Mm-hmm. Things with Lazarus seem to cool off after Sherry and John's wedding in November of 1985. They moved into Sherry's condo in Van Nuys, which had been a gift from her parents. The newlyweds spent the holiday season with their families, with whom Sherry was close. That closeness led Sherry to tell her father in early February of 1986 that she had arranged to meet someone to resolve a serious problem she did not want to discuss with her husband. It appeared Sherry had not told John about all of the run-ins with Lazarus, preferring to handle things herself.
1: Yeah. And I think if you've told him she showed up at my job, she showed up at the house and he's doing nothing.
3: Yeah. Yeah, You're you're like, like, well, I guess it's up to me to take care of this, which mm -hmm. is completely fucked up. Because even if you say something to her, it's not it doesn't seem like it's going to matter. No, I don't know if it would have mattered if John had said something to her, but it's his place to say something to her.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless uh, – well, because he had the opportunity to say something to her and say, listen, you need to accept this. I'm engaged now. Instead, he had sex with yeah. her. So,
3: yeah, he's not – he was he not handling it. He tried to have clo- get her closure. Instead, well, no what? It shocked that it made things a million times worse. Yeah, clearly it
1: spurred her on. But that's her family, her sister Teresa, said that Sherry was the glue that held the family together. There's these family videos of them at home visiting for Christmas. And they really did – I mean, after this, they're, you know, November 1985, they're married. So by Christmas, he was a full fledged member of the family. And she's like, it's Uncle John and Aunt Sherry and they're holding a baby. And it's he's playing this role of like perfect, lovely husband. Meanwhile, Sherry and at least Nell's and I'm sure other, you know, she was close with her sister as well. Know that when as soon as they go back to California, his ex-girlfriend is going to be lurking around the corner while Sherry's trying
3: to go to the grocery store. Who's to say she wasn't in Arizona? Right? You know, she I mean, I don't think no her, her stalking had limits necessarily, state line limits. No,
1: and to the, to the extent of watching his car and like, I think she was a lot more than what was even documented mm-hmm. and what Sherry noticed. I guarantee if Sherry noticed some of it, that was she noticed maybe 5%. Right. I bet there was way, way, way more. Yeah,
3: for sure. On Monday, February 24th, 1986, Sherry and John woke up early to start their work week. Sherry normally left for work before John. That day, she was dreading putting on an HR presentation at work. She contemplated calling in sick to avoid the obligation and was still in bed trying to decide what to do when John left for work before her at 7.20 a.m. John arrived at work around 8 a.m. Court records would later state that at 9.45, a neighbor noticed that the garage to Sherry and John's condo was open. Both cars were missing, and broken glass was on the driveway from the shattered patio door above. Around 10 a.m., John attempted to call Sherry at home. She didn't answer, neither did their machine, though he reasoned she may not have turned it on when she left. He called her office, but her secretary said she wasn't there. As she was due for a presentation, he wasn't concerned by this either. Yeah,
1: they had a. Their standard was whoever's the last one out the door to turn on the machine. But he said routinely, Sherry would forget. So it's one of those situations where, truly, that's a bad sign because she should have turned it on. But you just kind of go, oh, you just chalk it up like, oh, she just probably for, oh, she's not in her office. Oh, she's probably just she's probably at the meeting still. That you just go, it's just a normal day. You would never expect.
3: Let me ask you this: If you notice that. There was a broken patio door at your neighbor's house, glass all over the driveway, and uncharacteristically, their garage door was open and both cars were missing. Would you not call the police? You just go, oh, no, I
1: uh, I left my garage door open one night all night and at like 6 a.m. when my neighbor
3: left for work, she texted me. and was like, hey, I just want to make sure you're OK. My neighbor texted me that I left mine open one night. Turns out a bunch of stuff was stolen out of it. I'm glad that she let us know. No way. This was years ago. Like all of our lawn stuff, equipment was stolen out of it. No, we're right by all those evil scarecrows. So. But yeah, you should look at, you would think if you're absolutely right, you would
1: think that if your neighbor saw that, at the very least, just kind of go, knock, knock, knock. Yeah. Is there anybody, maybe... It's It's strange. It can be dangerous in some instances if you call for even just a wellness check, just sort of depending on, that's happened in some cases where a wellness check turns deadly. But if you see broken glass, I think that's a sign that... uh, And if it's broken glass and your neighbor's out there sweeping, going, oh, no, I accidentally dropped my bowling ball and it rolled through. No, but if it's broken and looks abandoned or something's going
3: on, at the very least, just go peek in, see if you see Mm -hmm. anything. John arrived home around 6 p.m. that evening, saw the broken glass on their front walk and noticed Sherry's BMW was missing. The door from the garage to the condo was ajar. Nervous, he went inside and found Sherry on the floor, dead in a pool of blood. Her skin was cold to the touch. She had been hit on her head and face. Her right eye was swollen shut, and her left eye was gazing forward. John checked for a pulse, and finding none, called 911.
1: Yeah, he sort of later described the feelings he had where he saw the broken glass and thought he didn't realize it had come from above
3: he thought oh well maybe she ran out to do an errand and she hit because she had hit something on her car a couple weeks before and and messed it up so yeah i mean that's what you would your brain is just like trying to make connections and make sense Mm -hmm. of something you know and even when he walked in and saw her lying there probably as a in disbelief and shock he thought why is she on the floor is she sleeping Mm -hmm. and then quickly was like oh No, that's blood. Yeah, this is this is real bad. And she um, was uh, in such a position that she had rigor mortis had already set in and her arms and legs were kind of stiff and sticking up. And she was still wearing her pajamas Mm -hmm. and the robe from when he left in the morning. Police arrived and investigated the scene. There was no sign of forced entry. Furniture was overturned. Items were moved from their normal positions. A stereo and a VCR were stacked by the door to the garage. A bloody handprint was found next to the panic button of the home's alarm. Immediately, police determined it was a burglary gone wrong. However, the only two items missing were the BMW Sherry received as an engagement gift and the couple's marriage certificate. Uh, Step one, I would say this is uh,
1: either a very bad burglary or... That was not the reason why someone was there. These are two
3: sentimental items. A BMW I could get if you're like, well, it is a The BMW a makes car. sense. Yes. The marriage but- certificate? No. And also, the uh, items stacked next to the door indicating someone was gathering things to collect before they left the house and, and stole them. Why would they still just be sitting there? There's mm-hmm. a TV. There's other valuables. There's jewelry that hadn't mm-hmm. been taken. So right away, it doesn't appear like it's a burglary to most people, Uh except for the LAPD. Yeah. Sherry sustained contusions and lacerations to her hands, mouth, face, head, and neck from fighting her attacker. Neighbors later reported hearing screaming and fighting, but at the time of the incident, didn't call police. Abrasions on Sherry's wrist indicated she had been bound with a rope or a cord. She had been hit in the face with the muzzle of a 38 caliber gun and shot three times at point-blank range in her chest with the same type of weapon. A blanket nearby had gunshot holes and gunpowder residue on its fabric, indicating it had been used to muffle the sound of the shots. The type of bullets used were consistent with those required to be used by LAPD officers at the time. No murder weapon was recovered from the scene.
1: Yeah, and the type of bullets was interesting because the LAPD had a policy that whether it was a a weapon issued by the department or a personal weapon purchased off-duty, totally, personally by an officer, the policy was you always had to use the same type of bullet, even in your personal weapon that
3: you're using personally off-duty. That is interesting. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I will say again, you need new neighbors. Yeah, yeah. If you hear and fighting screaming. and screaming and you've also seen broken glass and no one's calling the cops. Yeah.
1: Or, uh, you know, again, at the very least, just look out your window and go, what is happening? Even if you don't want to get involved, go, uh, someone should check that out. Like, just call 911 and say, I'm just concerned about these sounds I heard. That's what I I'm saying. Heard. Yeah. Do you don't have that to go over there,
3: but call the cops. I mean, yeah, what you this is also the mid 80s. So it's a different time than it is now.
1: Yeah. Not a lot of surveillance systems around to catch stuff Mm -hmm. it's like back then it really
3: was like neighborhood watch i remember those signs growing up of like you got to look out for each other (laughs) one key piece of evidence was a bite mark on sherry's inner left forearm it was swabbed for saliva and the sample was kept however dna technology wasn't advanced in 1986 so the sample was not tested sherry's bmw was recovered a week later on a street in van nuys the keys in the ignition Inside, investigators found blood, fingerprints, and a strand of brown hair. The prints were tested but didn't match anyone in the CODIS database. So they tested it
1: against known uh, prior convicted or arrested criminals, but not
3: other people. Right. John was quickly ruled out as a suspect after being interviewed by Detective Lyle Mayer, who had been assigned to Sherry's case. He was clearly distraught, and Detective Mayer believed his pain was genuine and palpable. More importantly, there was no apparent motive for John to have murdered his wife. No suspicious life insurance policy had recently been taken out, and a tearful John assured the detective he and his new bride had been happier than ever. So I believe that he legitimately was devastated to oh, come upon sure. this, and he, she really was the love of his life. That is sad. Why you wouldn't immediately go, I think I know who did this, is fucking crazy.
1: Yeah. And not just say like at the very least, because on the the very initial when he's sobbing, granted, he's very upset, but they have to do their job. The police said, what do you think happened? And he said, I don't know. We were so happy. Everything was going well. And he said, well, just to be sure, like, did you have any issues with any ex-girlfriends or did she have issues with ex-boyfriends? Did y'all have financial trouble? And John said, no, no, we didn't have any trouble. It's like as even as upset as you are. The answer to did you have any issues with ex-girlfriends is yes, she showed yeah. up at her work. She and showed, showed up at, up her at house. our house.
3: And yes. I Follows had sex her. with her while we were engaged. And, yeah, I mean, it's not like he even had to think of about his ex-girlfriend. It was a direct question that immediately your brain should go, yep, that, that makes sense. That Yeah, he was prompted on the yes. scene and just went, no. Yeah. The day after the murder, Sherry's father Nell's asked Detective Mayer. Have you checked out John's ex-girlfriend, the lady cop? Nels knew of Lazarus from his daughter, but did not know her name. When he had asked John for it, his son-in-law refused to reveal that information. Nels was brushed off by detectives who told him he had been Uh, watching too much TV. When Detective Mayer asked John during his interview if an ex-girlfriend could have been responsible for Sherry's murder, John said no. Refusing to believe Nels' stories of how Stephanie had repeatedly harassed his daughter. His mother yeah, fire. it's a bizarre almost protection. Yeah, or I I and maybe almost a protection of himself sure. because if he admits that yeah, this was bad and I should have stepped in, then you're kind of admitting which he does later, that, you know, this is basically my fault. I mean, yeah, I feel like of it's course a he, he did not th- – no one can make somebody murder someone. But he – had he not gone down that path further and h- maybe if he had tried to shut it down, who's Sooner. to say that if this still would have happened? But he, he didn't do that. And to not even give the name to your – I mean, it does seem like you're trying to protect him or you, maybe he's knows, well, this is going to blow up the whole LAPD if he calls someone incessant. but like you're – Wife has been brutally murdered. Do you care about that? Do you care what's, what's going
1: on with your ex? Surely he does. I mean, it seems like he doesn't really care. You know, it's like he's put, well, I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. It's like the boat has been rocked. Your yes. wife has been murdered. Yeah. It's, the, it's, you,
3: you should Completely want the truth. upside down in the ocean at this point.
1: Yes, you should want the truth.
3: Mm-hmm. Another very bizarre thing is John's father is the one that called Nels to tell him Sherry was dead and then share and then her parents say well we want to talk to john and he's like no he's grieving well what of course he's grieving but yes. why wouldn't you call your your in-laws, in-laws to say what had happened to their daughter
1: yeah it's it is a uh i think maybe denial and probably you feel guilty like you yeah. said you're, you're not guilt. wanting to say it what
3: what you know is the truth mm-hmm. Two days after the murder, John told investigators that they should check out Lazarus, apparently having a change of heart from just days prior. The police told John there was no way she was involved, so John dropped it. This didn't sit well with Sherry's family or friends. Sherry's friend Jane Goldberg told 48 Hours, I would have expected that John would have been much more involved
1: in the investigation and demand answers. He should have been her advocate. She would have been
3: his. I don't understand it. Pushing the burglary narrative, Detective Mayer claimed in a TV interview at the time that two illegal aliens were responsible for Sherry's murder and circulated sketches of two Hispanic males. While interviewing neighbors, investigators had learned that two Hispanic men had been breaking into homes in the area. According to Vanity Fair, during one of the burglaries, a woman had been assaulted. This cemented the LAPD's theory that Sherry's murder was the result of an armed burglary.
1: Yeah, this TV interview is gross. He's just pushing this racist narrative yeah. of, you know what I mean. Instead of saying, well, we're, let's really look at the suspects and figure out if any of this matches them, even if you can't necessarily test the DNA at the time, fingerprints in the car, fingerprints around the house. But you know, it's the to just easily go, oh, well, it's just probably the same thing. Mm-hmm. Instead of really looking for the truth, and Detective Mayer was uh, from the book The Lazarus File a uh, uh, writer for the Atlantic wrote an entire book about it, but talked about his career and he was a very senior detective and had worked a lot of cases before, which makes my stomach drop mm-hmm. because if in this, you see, this is like a microcosm of lack of investigation. He also protecting detected, your own protect. Yeah. Maybe protecting your own, but definitely of choosing like the least resistance, a path, the path of, of least, least resistance. resistance. Yeah.
3: None of this added up for Nels or the rest of Sherry's loved ones. Why would armed robbers have killed Sherry but not have taken valuable items from the house? Additionally, according to Rasmussen's attorney, Detective Mayer never interviewed Sherry's co-workers, friends, or her sister who had seen and spoken with her the day before the murder. And that's what
1: Detective Mayer said. Yeah, I did. And the Rasmussen's attorney said, "Okay, well, we have the file and that you interviewed like three people. And he's like, well, I I talked to a lot of people. I I canvassed hundreds of people. And he was like, well, there's no note of it. So how are we supposed to know this? Well, no. I mean, well, maybe. It was probably somewhere. I don't know. And it's like, okay, at the very least, that's very shoddy record keeping for an unsolved murder. But because you talk to her best friend, her sister and say, did the detective talk to you? And they go, no, it's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. either everybody related to her that witnessed the incident at the hospital or, you know, where her sister that saw her, her brother-in-law came over too. Either they're all colluding together and lying on Detective Mayor, or Detective Mayor's full of shit and he didn't. He went, oh, open and shut. It was those, you know, those dudes from down the street and just,
3: you know, brush your hands off and go, all right, I'm done here. Even though you have her husband and her father saying, you need to look at this. We get it's a fellow cop, but there's been a lot of instances where she's been harassing her and she had a problem with her. They found A bite mark, which is usually more associated with uh, female attackers. Mm -hmm. The hair in the car was long and brown. They had a lot of reason to investigate her, but, you know, she was an officer and a high-ranking officer. And one, the really sick thing
1: is when you read about how the Rasmussen's were treated by the LAPD and it said at their first meeting that Detective Mayer got into Nelsa's face and like acted really aggressive towards Mm -hmm. him, bumped him, put his hands on him, stood between him and John and that they said pretty much every single time it was like they were confused because they're like, our daughter was murdered. You're supposed to be helping mm-hmm. solve her murder. Why are you treating us like we're enemies? It was very combative. It was very adversarial. They said at every meeting that the detectives were like irritated with them. They actually impatient. They were sarcastic, critical, openly hostile. It reminds hostile. me of Ellen Greenberg. Yes, that they're like y'all. They, these parents just don't want to accept the truth, mm-hmm. and it's like, or they are they are grieving, but their way to process their grief is to dig into the facts and circumstances Advocate and for understand, their daughter. Yes, yeah, justice. As any
3: parent would. Yeah, for sure.
1: They literally told Nels Rasmus and they pushed papers off the desk and said, well, if you think you're so good, why don't you just take over the investigation?
3: Okay, give me a badge. (laughs) Give me a gun. I'm done and done. Which way to Lazarus's office? Yes. And I mean, to their credit, they didn't just give
1: up. I mean, it irritated, pissed them off. But also they said they were so disheartened Mm -hmm. because they live again. They lived in Arizona. Like you're far away and you're like, we were supposed to help us. Why are you treating us Mm -hmm. like we're
3: such a pain in your ass? It would be three more years before Stephanie Lazarus saw John again. In 1989, the two met up on a scuba trip in Hawaii. Before the trip, John called Detective Mayer and confirmed he had ruled Lazarus out as a suspect, despite his earlier statements that there was no way she had been involved in his wife's death. Mayer assured John he had nothing to worry about. So you are uh, have enough self-awareness to go, Maybe I need to clear this before I go because I know I'm gonna sleep with her. So maybe I should make sure she didn't kill my wife. So you—that's all still going on in your head. If you're—if you go to the, the links to call them to be like, she's not the one that did this, right? That is disgusting.
1: Three years later, you're clear because you're. Then there's clearly
3: at least some doubt in your mind. Oh yeah, and then and you haven't done anything to push it to and say really. By them saying no, all that is is someone giving him permission to go sleep with her, essentially. I mean, you're just it's like when you're like looking for any friend to just give you permission to do something because you want to do it. And, you know, I mean, you have every intention of doing it, but you just want to be like, well, at least I can say I cover my bases and I can feel better about myself in this decision. But he knew what he was going on that trip to do.
1: Absolutely. Otherwise, why would you make that phone call? And I think because later or Detective Mayor said, well, nobody mentioned Stephanie Lazarus to me until months later, despite Nels and John, you know, having mentioned it. But of course, like months later, you kind of go, oh, well, if she really was a viable suspect, we probably would have heard about it. We're not going to they just ignored it. Mm -hmm. And then he calls to get the permission. That's that, that to me just shows his mindset at the time. And it's disgusting that his mindset was not Why am I not still fighting to her to have her murder solved? It is. Well, can I just absolve myself that it wasn't my fault and then I can go to
3: Hawaii and hook up? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During the trip, John and Stephanie had sex, as well as a few more times once they were back in California. They eventually went their separate ways, according to Vanity Fair, with John remarrying someone else and Lazarus marrying a fellow LAPD detective. Lazarus rose in the ranks to detective and begun working on the elite art theft unit within the squad.
1: Yeah, I think uh, this was kind of like a last hurrah, I guess, for them, for him. But I think we'll see there's digital evidence that shows she kept thinking about him throughout the
3: years. It's bizarre to me. And, you know, there's not a ton of information of what went on between them during this time. If you went to the trouble... To murder somebody's wife because you were so obsessed and in love with him. And then you're like, okay, well, three years later, we have sex a couple times. And then, all right, that's it. What was, you know, I mean, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's no, you're right. It's a very senseless murder, but especially then her behavior in the aftermath of it, she didn't, according to some testimony, she didn't contact John in the days or months after the murder. Could they be lying? Possibly, mm-hmm. sure. But uh, according, from all
3: available information, that immediately after
1: the murder, they didn't talk to each other. That
3: would have been a big red flag for me as John, seeing as how this woman was all up in my ass the whole time I was married, and then all of a sudden my, my wife's dead, it's all over the news, mm-hmm. and... I don't get a call, a condolence call. She says that she, you know, called his family and stuff to say, uh, to give her condolences and everything. But it's, um, you wonder, was it because she was uh, very, felt very guilty? Was it, you know, she couldn't get over what she had done? Was she just trying to bide her time so it didn't look suspicious? Oh, I would assume it would be the third that Mm -hmm. you know what you did
1: and inserting yourself would not look good. I can't it's hard for me to believe even though they swore under oath or John swore under oath it's hard for me to believe that they did not talk whatsoever until 3 years later.
3: Yeah, with as fixated as she was. Yeah, I don't really buy that either. Especially if the first time in 3 years that you see each other is in Hawaii that you just happen to be on a scuba trip, you happen to be with friends at the same
1: time. Really you just so
3: happened cuz you called You the knew Texas she mayor. was going to be there. I mean, I think they knew they were both going to be there. Perhaps mm-hmm. they were going there with with other friends. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's um, I I, I agree. I it, it doesn't. I don't really buy it either. But you're right. It is totally
1: senseless that if her grand scheme was to get rid of Sherry so she and John could be together, mm-hmm. then it's uh, even more de- just depressing and gut wrenching that you took a life, and not even for the ends. That which you did it with, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you did it for the okay, the end of this is we're going to be together, and that's not even what happened, it's that much more heart wrenching. Mm-hmm.
3: Grief-stricken over the loss of their daughter, the Rasmussens kept pushing for answers. In 1993, they asked for testing of the bite mark DNA, even offering to pay for the testing themselves. But nothing happened until a new cold case unit looked at the case in 2004. According to Vanity Fair, criminalist Jennifer Francis was confused when there was reference to a bite mark swab in the crime report, but no mention of the swab on the evidence log. The case file appeared to be missing evidence, including every shred of DNA, notes from interviews implicating Lazarus, and the hair from the car. Many of the pieces had been signed out of the file in 1993 by an LAPD detective. The same year, the Rasmussens had called police asking for a DNA test. And when later that detective was questioned, why would you sign all this out? He said, I didn't sign that out. I mean, it becomes just a, he said, she said, "They said situation and red tape. When uh, one of those camps is the LAPD, you're kind of up against a a, a wall."
1: Yeah, and it, uh, especially it's that old. I think you, if you're the perpetrator, would assume you got away with it, and then they won't. The Rasmussen's would not go quietly into that good night, and kept calling and kept calling. And in 1993, if you catch wind, like, hey, they're wanting to test this, they're willing to test mm-hmm. this. And the technology is getting to the point that they're going to figure out who this bite mark saliva belongs to. Somebody may go in there and sign somebody else's name or have a buddy go in there and sign it out. Uh, But particularly disturbing was, yeah, the hair from the car was missing that was not the same color of Sherry's Mm -hmm. hair, but happened to be the same color of Stephanie Lazarus's hair. You know, she had brown hair, that kind of stuff being missing. And as Jennifer Francis, who's your job as a criminalist, she wanted to she's on the cold case unit. She wants to solve these things. You think, okay, well, I'll just gather everything and test it. And you go to gather it. And you're like, why is the box
3: empty? Mm -hmm. The bite-mark swab was found in the coroner's office freezer, where it had been sitting for the past 18 years. After it was tested, the results revealed the saliva belonged to a woman. Still, Sherry's case stalled for another four long years. In 2009, cold case detectives Gregory Starnes and Dan Jaramillo re-examined Sherry's case again. This time, they made a list of five possible female suspects. They ruled them out one by one until they were left with Lazarus, and that's what Jennifer Francis said. She went
1: to the coroner's freezer, and they found this. They dug tube. through the freezer. They dug through it. It was in a envelope, mm-hmm. and the, it was kind of sticking out the side of the envelope. It had the envelope had been damaged, but the test tube had not. But because it was so old that the case number had rubbed off the test tube, but it still said Rasmussen mm-hmm. on it. And she said it was just total fate, coincidence, whatever, that whoever went in and swiped all the previous evidence to i don't presumably destroy it, it's missing. The one key piece that was uh, going to unlock the whole
3: thing just happened to get left behind. It's pretty alarming that for 18 years, a piece of evidence can sit in a LAPD coroner's freezer and never be touched. No one ever yeah. says, what's that envelope sitting in there? Yeah, I think it must have been just stuck back in in storage and
1: nobody thought to clean it out, or it doesn't get cleaned out or organized in case they need it. That's
3: concerning.
1: I think, yeah, I think maybe every
3: year you do a spring cleaning, you clean that out and just see what we're working with.
1: Yeah, just take stock. Maybe mm-hmm. put it in a—I don't know—a database, a system. Maybe yeah. uh, take somebody's thumbprint when they go to take evidence out, so it's not just like "well, I signed the clipboard." Right. So you could you just fake somebody's name. Uh, and also, I think this definitely shows the ver- the vital importance of criminalist, you know, forensic science in the justice system, where she's concerned about the truth. She yeah. doesn't really have this dog in the fight of like, well, we got to protect whoever. And then the well, same she doesn't even for,
3: know that it would be her. No. Yeah. She's just
1: there to, to get the answers. And again, for the importance of cold case detectives like Stearns and Jaramillo, who are, again, are every investigator. Your concern should be the truth. But saying like, we're removed from this. It's sad that it was 18 years removed. But like, again, we're removed. We just give me the binder and I'll make the
3: decision. Mm-hmm. Fresh eyes. Stearns and Jaramillo knew that because their primary suspect was an LAPD officer, their usual approach to investigating a case wasn't going to work. They had to take extra precautions not to tip anyone off in her department, especially Lazarus. For months, the detectives built their case against Lazarus. After watching her for weeks, they were finally able to collect a cup and straw she discarded at a local Costco. They ran Lazarus' DNA against the sample from the bite mark on Sherry's forearm. The results showed a one in four hundred and five quadrillion match. Well, the numbers are against you there.
1: Yeah. Statistically, that's not great. Mm-hmm. That's not great. Well, and, you know, you hear uh, devil's advocate. Well, like, we don't know that that test tube was really from the Rasmussen case. Yeah, we do. Like it was despite the yeah. label being rubbed off. I don't think somebody went and swabbed
3: Stephanie Lazarus's mouth and then hit it for 18 years. No, that doesn't to frame make her. Mm hmm. Based on the evidence, cold case detectives determined that Sherry had been surprised by Lazarus in the upstairs bedroom. Because the front door to the condo was unlocked and the alarm was not set, Lazarus was able to enter the home undetected. In the bedroom, Lazarus fired two shots at Sherry that missed, instead shattering the glass door to the balcony. Fleeing, Sherry ran downstairs where she tried to press the panic button on the house alarm, but Lazarus attacked her before she could reach the panel. Sherry fought hard for her life, at one point managing to wrestle the gun away from Lazarus and put her in a chokehold. To break free, Lazarus bit Sherry's forearm, before hitting her over the head with a nearby vase. While Sherry was dazed from the blow, Lazarus shot her in the chest. She then grabbed a blanket to muffle two more shots she fired into Sherry's chest. The internal damage of the initial shot would have caused Sherry to bleed out within minutes. It's just so eerie to think of Stephanie Lazarus lying in wait. Yeah, and and that's what I was thinking. She was obviously watching the house to know John had left and Sherry had stayed behind. She knew their schedules, she knew when she would have gone. You know what I mean? So and who knows how many mornings she had watched and Sherry left before John and she wasn't able to do that.
1: And she uh, was off, I believe, she was off that day from work. uh, I'm sorry. Stephanie was off that day from
3: work and also the two previous
1: days and untold number of days before or, you know, before that and the months leading up to that. Like,
3: how many times had she watched and been like, will today be the day that I'm Mm going to do this? Yeah. On June 5th, 2009, Stearns and Jaramillo lured Lazarus to a secure interrogation room in an LAPD administration building. It was an area that required officers to turn over their weapons so the detectives knew they could talk with her safely. Stephanie had been brought to the interrogation room, under the guise that the detectives needed her help interviewing a suspect in a recent art theft case. When she was led into the room, there was no suspect waiting for her. Instead, she was told to sit where the person being interrogated normally did. The detectives told her they were working a cold case, and her name had come up in the notes. In the taped interview footage, Lazarus appears at first to be confused, when Harumio asks her if she knows John Reuton, When Harumio asked if she knew John Rutan, Lazarus was visibly put off, but remained composed. She told the detectives that they met in the UCLA dorms and dated for a bit. Suspicious, Stephanie asked the detectives uh, What's this all about? Harumio said Well uh, it's relating to his wife. Feigning confusion, Lazarus replied. Okay. As soon as you walk in that room. She's not an idiot. She's a very uh well-decorated police officer now working mm-hmm. in a very elite unit. She's been there for t- over two decades. She knows the drill. When she walks into that room and sees there's no one in here to interrogate, do you think she immediately knew?
1: Well, her uh I think the little bit of a radar goes off mm-hmm. when they say, "Well, just sit over there" cuz they had a file
3: with them. Yeah. So you
1: might be like, oh, okay, well, we're going to put the she file she says, on, are you bringing somebody
3: in? And they go, yeah. well, we've been working at Kate. You know I mean? So right from the they jump, she's like, this doesn't seem right. When, But when they say, do you know John Rutten? Stomach drop. You know right then she knows yeah. what's going on.
1: And Jaramillo did that on purpose because it's oh, John yeah. Rutten.
3: And yes. then he gets
1: her to go, did you mean John Rutten? And he's like, yes,
3: I did. Mm-hmm. And you just answered me. Yeah, it's... Um, we watched together, actually. Yes, we did. The, this is our um, first case
1: that we researched part of it at the same yeah, time in the same room together. The
3: uh, interrogation footage of this, and it's a hidden camera. Looks like one of their, I guess phones wouldn't have had them back then, but it's some kind of hidden camera that's like yep, kind of at it, a desk angle.
1: Yeah, it seems like he had it in something. Yeah, like maybe I
3: don't know if it was in like a box or a briefcase
1: or a bag or something, because it's a little bit um obscured Mm -hmm. slightly at the for the first few seconds but
3: then she sits back and you can see her whole face yeah and she is um on edge from from the second she sits down she's very tense it's it's very um like yeah she's very jittery she's nervous she's in the the uh program that we watched had uh, behavioral analysts and, and psychologists, you know, analyzing kind of the words she said, her facial expressions, her body language, and everything. And it's fascinating to see how someone behaves when they're lying, and then versus because there, there are a few times during the course of the interrogation where she does genuinely try and think of something or is honest with something, and you can tell. I mean, even though it it might be subtle. How her demeanor and her speech changes, her body language, the facial expression she makes, all of that changes. And those are things that most people can't control. Yeah. And, and they, she's feigning these answers
1: mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know, maybe. But when they ask her something that – didn't you see her go – Oh, yeah. It was this date. Like, how she really thinks Mm -hmm. of something is her acting is terrible of how she thinks she should act if she was thinking of something. Which you kept saying while we were watching. You kept going, she's a professional detective.
3: Yeah. I was. I was. She's terrible. I was surprised at how poorly she did, given the fact that she does what she does for a living.
1: For that long. Yeah. For as long as she did. It's not a rookie cop that has never investigated. She's an elite like unit that is high stakes, high profile cases that she has to interrogate people and to watch her just absolutely melt in a puddle. and yeah, crumble. It's it's
3: she just unravels. It's, bizarre. it's uh, in the Vanity Fair article. They make a lot of good points of because they, you know, she was not arrested at this point, so she could have got up and left, but she doesn't. And the Vanity Fair article speculates, you know, how would that have looked had she, if she had asked for a lawyer right away, even though She's a cop. She should know. Uh, I need a lawyer. And eventually she does ask about that. But right away, she just starts answering them. But if she hadn't, that would have looked very suspicious. And then that brings up another line of questioning. Like, why don't you want to talk about this? Why don't you want to answer us? I would say she should have shut the fuck up oh, and yeah, asked her lawyer. for sure. Because,
1: again, because she is a detective, When when a detective says to you, you're free to go anytime. What they are doing is on the record establishing it's a non custodial interrogation. Because if it's custodial and you're not allowed to leave, they have to mirandize mm-hmm. you and they have to give you all your rights. So repeatedly he's like, You can go anytime. Don't worry, you can leave any time. Her radar, I think she was too much in like self preservation yeah, mode. She was in but fight or
3: flight mode for sure. As a
1: pr- as a professional, her radar should have gone up and been like, he has just established this is a non-custodial interrogation. I need to shut the hell up and get an attorney. I think it, and if they wanted to later go like, oh, really? You're getting a lawyer? I'd be like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck y'all are up to, but I'm getting yeah. a lawyer.
3: Bye. That's absolutely
1: what we she should have done. We all know I should
3: get a lawyer. We uh, and Anybody in this yes. situation should get a lawyer. I <laughs> She's like, say, I'm a cop. We trick people. That's right? like literally
1: interrogations are tricking people to get them to, like, to spill on themselves. Like, lady, shut the hell up. I think she thought she was too smart for them. Like, I gotten away for this long
3: yeah I think that I think also she was so caught off guard that she really just was Thuffed frantic and, and not thinking clearly and I think it's a true testament to the good detective work of of uh Stearns and hero that they were able to get all this information out of her and it because they weren't they were very polite they you know were like acting like they're on her side for most of it and everything which is they're all tactics you know they wanted to stay there as yeah. long as possible and and so by doing that she did at times let her guard down at times she even you know they would kind of go back to the buddy buddy cops that we are you know she would kind of give a nod and a wink like y'all are going to tell me what this is about right you know what i mean mm-hmm. so she thought they were still kind of on her side for a lot of it
2: 18 plus.
3: So it it shows that even though it was 18 years later there are detectives out there that are willing to put in the work for this and even if it mm-hmm. is a LAPD officer you're busting they're, yeah, they're going to they do just it. Yeah say
1: like I'm not here to protect y'all. Mm-hmm. I'm here to serve and protect the public. Like, we are a team. I get it. But if one of you has cold-blooded murdered someone, we're doing what is right here. And you're right. They did a very effective job of saying, oh, you know how it is. Like, yeah. your name's just coming up. We just got to clear your name. You know, we just we just got to run down leads. Yeah, they like, said,
3: we didn't yeah. want to come do this at your desk because we didn't want, you know, any suspicions to go up or anything. So He's they were like, like, acting like, gossips. we're doing this for you. We're, we're, we're being the nice guys. Meanwhile, for, you know, four months prior, they had been just coming up with an airtight case that was so secretive that her name was not even written in any files. I believe they referred to her as number five Mm -hmm. because they didn't want anything getting leaked. They didn't want her to have any kind of a heads up to have answers prepared. And obviously it worked because she was completely caught off guard. And it's very obvious in the interview that she was.
1: And you're right, especially having Jennifer Francis go, yeah, the DNA evidence is missing. Mm-hmm. I know their red flags went up and was like, oh, people are watching this case or at least had been in the past and meddling with it. Like, we've got to keep this totally under the radar. So, yeah, they caught her. The footage, if we'll link it in the show notes, watching her uh, struggle
3: unravel. Yeah, it's um, it's very cringy. Over the next hour, the detectives took turns asking Lazarus questions. Repeatedly, Stephanie feigned confusion, surprise, and bewilderment at their questions. When asked if she knew Sherry Rasmussen, Stephanie acted as if she had no idea, making exaggerated facial expressions to try and sell her answers.
1: Oh, well, let me
3: think. Oh, God, it's been a long time ago. Throwing her hands up, Stephanie declared, I, I may have met her, jeez, you know. Uh, I'm... <sighs> Most people, when asked that, would either say yes or no.
1: Yeah. Or just go. I know John was married. Yeah. And yes, I met her. I don't know if it was before or after they were married, but we met in person Mm -hmm. for sure. Because it's like that's so provable. There were people at that party, you
3: idiot. There were people at her at her hospital there. You know, I mean, John knows that you met her. They can call John. And and also as a detective, you know that you're not asking any questions you don't already know the answers to. Bingo. And for
1: her, the acting is terrible. She's like, oh, 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 oh." she makes all these like noises. She throws her hands up. Her eyes are in full force, bugging out of her head, shrugging, moving her head around, just like, it's like she's manic. It looks like manic or like
3: she's on drugs or something. It's it's very, yeah, very manic behavior.
1: And the assessment that we watched from the criminal psychologist or the behavioral psychologist was like, you can actually watch the rise and fall of her chest mm-hmm. that she's like, when they start bringing up Sherry, she's like, she's really. And but she's like, like, she's trying to keep herself yeah. calm. Mm-hmm. It's like,
3: lady, this. And she and well, she didn't know she was being filmed, but yeah you should true. assume, always assume they're recording. Mm-hmm. You. Throughout the interrogation, Lazarus downplayed her relationship with John. When asked if she ever went to the couple's condo or the hospital where Sherry worked, Lazarus conceded she may have, but didn't really remember. Repeatedly saying that it's been
1: a million years ago, I don't. It's been a million years ago.
3: Her recollection of memories changed several times during the line of questioning, with many of her answers being over-explained or involving unimportant details, both indicators that a person is lying.
1: Yeah, yeah when, she asked, went on a rant. when
3: asked, when asked. The very first question, do you know John Rutten? You would say, yeah or no. Instead, um, yeah, we went to college in 1984. Um, we lived in the dorm seat. Gee, what dorm was that? That was district dorm. Yeah, we lived there. We had, I mean, it's just like immediate yeah. diarrhea of the mouth. Yeah, she's like, "Oh, I know. His
1: brother, his brother played. He played basketball at Northridge and and I went to Northridge or, or no, whatever. You know, and she's mm-hmm. going on and then they ask her something else and she's like, "Why well, take a lot of pictures and I scanned all my pictures recently. It was
3: like 10,000 pictures that I scanned and it's just like but yeah. well, it and- doesn't matter. It's just, she's just she's in complete like fight mode." and
1: and i think too these are true things so she's trying to say true yeah. things like her scanning pictures is true knowing the brother went to northridge is true because there's so many lies i think she's trying to grasp at anything that's true to make her like calm herself down yeah
3: and to sound like uh, chill and unbelievable and, and stuff you know referring directly to the murder haramio asked lazarus if she had ever gone to the condo and things had become heated between her and sherry lazarus replied that, that just doesn't sound familiar, you know? It, it's not sounded familiar, not at all. Politely applying a bit more pressure, Detective Starnes asked Lazarus if she had ever fought with Sherry. Lazarus answered, No, I, I don't think so. One of the last things Lazarus said before leaving the interrogation room was, We had a fight, so I went and killed her? Come on. Though detectives told her she was free to leave, Lazarus was immediately arrested once she got on the other side of the interrogation room. After the cuffs were put on her and she was Mirandized, the officers asked if she wanted to talk to them. She said, (laughs) no, laughed and said, (laughs) this is this is crazy. I'm like, I'm like in shock. I'm, I'm totally in shock. I believe that.
1: Yeah. And I think the question mark on the end of we had a fight. So I went and killed her. Was not a question mark. I think that was her way of saying it without saying it. You know, like, oh, oh, come, come on. Like, it's in disbelief. But I think she was like, she couldn't help herself. Like, she was admitting it. But yeah, mm-hmm. they say, yeah, if you want to go, you can go. And you watch, watch like, doot, 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 doot. Takes a few steps. Door shuts. Comes back in. Okay, we well, understand you have the right to remain silent, mm-hmm. right? And it was like, girl, that was not.
3: I mean, I... I... She probably knew what was going to happen. Well, what can you do? Stay in that room all day? I mean, you got to right. leave at some point.
1: You're like, what, are you going to arrest me or what? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. And then, yeah, once she's Mirandized, the, the demeanor is still... It's, like, shocking to me that she did not just shut up. Yeah. Just shut up. She she she's still help just herself. like, ah, this is... Ah, ah, ah. I think she didn't know about the DNA because they... The footage
3: I saw of the interrogation, they did not mention that to mm-hmm. her. The day of her arrest, John called Sherry's parents and apologized Sherry's mother told 48 hours.
1: He called and told me he was sorry that because of him, Sherry lost her life, and I didn't really care to talk to
3: him. I don't blame her. You couldn't call to tell me she was dead, but now we find out what we all knew this whole time that this woman was responsible, and you knew from the beginning that she was a problem.
1: Yes. And again, that guilt, that decades long Mm -hmm. guilt now that you know. You did not do all you could do on the front end to stop her. And then after the murder, he did not do all he could do. Like uh, her friend Jane Goldberg said,
3: not never once acted as her advocate. Mm -hmm. Not to mention uh, several years before this, he had slept with her multiple times. Yeah. Uh, In in the in between period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On December 18th, 2009, Stephanie Lazarus was indicted on charges of first degree murder. Lazarus tried to get the charges against her dismissed, arguing that she was prejudiced by the negligence of the LAPD, waiting so long to investigate her. The court was not convinced, and her trial began in early 2012. Yeah, you can't use that corruption as as a protection of yourself. I imagine she's going to do whatever she can oh, to, yeah, to get out of this, as are her attorneys. The prosecution had much more evidence than the bite mark to place Lazarus at the scene of the crime. On February 29, 1984, Lazarus had purchased a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber gun, the same gun used in the murder. Conveniently, she had reported it stolen to the LAPD 13 days after using it to kill Sherry. Jurors heard testimony about Lazarus' visit to the hospital to harass Sherry. A fellow police officer testified that Lazarus had showed her lock-picking tools and bragged that she had learned how to use them. Despite her attempts to downplay her relationship with John, the jury also heard how Lazarus repeatedly wrote about her fixation with him in her journals, lamenting one day she didn't feel like working, too stressed out about John. She made no journal entry describing her gun supposedly being stolen.
1: Yeah, she wrote about him repeatedly in her diary, wrote about how she stalked his car, wrote a note for him on the car, sat and
3: watched. Why? waiting why? for him to come do you know how note? many times we have found the journals of a murderer and they document it all why yeah. are you writing all this shit down
1: yeah she i wonder if she didn't know at the time she was going to do it. i mean it was a, but the disturbing thing was like months leading up to the murder mm-hmm. she was very fixated on them very fixated on their relationship for years and of course, even she had been Oh, yeah. And just try to downplay it, of course, later of like, oh, well, we just casually dated. It was like, no, you're obsessed to the point of Mm -hmm. bothering his parents, watching his car. And again, she wrote about the one time
3: she stalked his car out. There's untold times that she probably stalked him. After deliberating for three days on March 8th, 2012, a jury of four men and eight women found Lazarus guilty of first degree murder with use of a handgun. The court imposed a sentence of 25 years to life for the murder plus two years for the weapons enhancement. Lazarus attempted to appeal, arguing again that the time between the crime and her being charged had prejudiced her. She also argued that the search warrants for evidence in her home were overly broad. On July 13, 2015, the appellate court unanimously upheld her conviction. And then the California Supreme Court refused to hear that appeal,
1: which essentially means it's final. So, yeah, I mean, you throw everything you can at the appeal to try to get off. But uh, I think they were particularly weak arguments. And also, even if you did argue that, that you don't want to dig into, well, why did they take so long to investigate you? Is it because your buddies were in there? I wondered if the more she pressed it, the more you're going to start implicating fellow officers that may have helped or... That she had even if if, even if even if nobody helped her cover it up, that if she had used their names and committed crimes in furtherance of trying to cover, you know, whenever those the evidence got signed out in 1993 by, you know, Detective Smith, if it wasn't really him that she went in and signed somebody else's name, like, eventually they let it go. So what
3: does that mean? Like, what does that mean that how how did the time it being so long? How would that prejudice her? that her uh her appellate attorney argued that she would she
1: if she had been accused at the time she would have been able to remember where she was that day okay. and time Got provide it. receipts for where she was tell you know be able to interview witnesses his argument was i don't know what i was doing on february right. 28th 1986 how would she how is she supposed to know aside from you know the diaries or whatever and she had no diary entries those days so she convenient. at the very least didn't you know write her own confession in there and also just saying like all the pertinent witnesses the evidence could have been tested the fingerprints could have been tested things like that that the argument was because she wasn't made a suspect until 2009 that the time that had passed she didn't have a meaningful opportunity to defend mm-hmm. herself i disagree that the search warrants and so did the court of appeals that the search warrants were overly broad it literally was just like any possible writings that yeah, could involve john phones. and when they searched her because they're like well the crime was in 1986 why would you search her computer well they searched her computer and found that she had googled john or searched him online like three times over the course of several years Mm -hmm. just proving like she knew him she was fixated on
3: him so i think it was relevant during this time too i mean she had obviously gotten married to another officer but they also adopted a daughter Mm -hmm. and she was with her daughter at that costco when and they were having a snack when she threw out that cup so it's for several reasons, that's upsetting that uh, a convicted or now a convicted murderer could have gotten away for so long and, and adopted a child. But also mm-hmm. that kids lost their mom now. Yeah. And again, just
1: because this was not properly investigated mm-hmm. at the time, it was just brushed off and the Rasmussen's were told they were
3: crazy. Mm-hmm. The Rasmussen sued the LAPD and 100 John Doe officers who they alleged had orchestrated a cover up. The court determined the Rasmussen's had waited too late to file their lawsuit, and that the deal they had previously made to drop their federal civil rights claim barred their further pursuit of the matter. Their suit against Stephanie Lazarus for wrongful death proceeded, with the trial court judge ordering Lazarus to pay them ten million dollars. The judgment was affirmed on appeal. This is really sad. So the
1: Rasmussen's tried to sue the city of Los Angeles the, which is of which the LAPD is a part and they initially claimed three things they claimed a state Law civil rights claim that because there was a cover up by the LAPD, they were denied their civil right of being able to meaningfully pursue their daughter's killer in civil court. They filed the same lawsuit. It was a federal civil rights claim, which is called a 1983 action. It's a federal statute under which you sue uh, governmental agencies that uh, violate your civil rights under the color of law, like under as part of their official job. And then, because again, it violated their civil rights by not being able to pursue their daughter's killer. And they were suing Stephanie Lazarus for wrongful death. So initially, the city of Los Angeles said, well, you know, cause of action number two is actually federal. So we think we should remove this to federal court. So it got removed to federal court. And I believe that the statutes of limitations, the some of the procedural things weren't as friendly in federal court. So the Rasmussen's didn't want to be in federal court. So as part of an agreement with the city of Los Angeles, they said, OK, well, we agree to uh, we're going to drop, dismiss with prejudice our federal civil rights claim. So that means with prejudice, we can never bring it again in order to get this back in state court. So they made this deal. Well, then they get in state court. It goes up through at state court. Then the city of Los Angeles, they amend their complaint and they say, OK, well, now we want to still claim, number one, that this under state law, they violated our civil rights. But we also want to claim that, Under state law, intentional infliction of emotional distress, like by covering this up, you have purposefully harmed us like emotionally and fraudulent concealment by hiding the evidence, you know, uh, destroying it, whatever the DNA, uh, the uh, hair from the car and things like that. Well, so then the city of Los Angeles says, okay. Well, those are all state law claims. Uh, the civil rights claim, intentional infliction, and fraudulent concealment. Those are all state law claims. And all of those have a two year statute of limitations. So your whole entire case is time barred. Sorry. Bye. And the court said, yeah, we agree. We hate it. We hate it. It's super sad to us that there's a two year statute on these things. But these instances that you're alleging. And the last run-in that they had physically with the LAPD, where, again, they were told they were a pain in the ass and annoying and please go away, was like 1998 or 1996, something like that, late 90s. And so the court said, even if we take everything in your complaint to be true, the last time the LAPD was shitty to you was in like the late 90s. So two years after that, your statute, you should have filed it by then. I strongly dis- and, and said, your case is dismissed. You're done. So you can't sue the city of Los Angeles.
0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday,
1: I will call
2: upon you to do a service for
0: me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com.
2: Welcome to the family.
3: VTW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
1: That, I, I disagree, and you see this issue with civil litigation claims in the criminal justice system when there is some type of corruption cover up wrongful conviction or in this case no conviction at all for 20 years that I think and policy wise I think we should have a statute of limitations that starts running the date of discovery because I think to me it's unfair to tell the Rasmussen's well you should have known that this corruption was happening and you should have sued in the 90s when you didn't even know that mm-hmm. there that she you had an inkling that it was stephanie lazarus but you didn't have a conviction that it was stephanie mm-hmm. lazarus or even just an arrest that it was stephanie lazarus and you could then prove fraudulent concealment intentional infliction and civil rights violation instead The law is very draconian and is like, nope, it's from the date of the action and that's all we care about. And you see that in Texas. There's been instances where detectives hid uh, it was on the innocence files. It was a case where the detectives have hidden a key piece of evidence. It comes out later. A good cop goes, hey, man, this really this is not right. This shouldn't be hidden. They bring it to the attention of uh, the usually exoneration attorneys and the exoneration attorneys want to try and sue civilly on their client's behalf. Or even say, we want to prosecute that detective for hiding this evidence. And this, the statute of limita- limitation on the criminal action for hiding evidence is two years. And it's like, well, you should have known that he hid the evidence for 20 years, 20 years ago. And you're like, well, I couldn't have known what, that. Am until I, been- yeah, do
3: I have a crystal ball? How would I have known yeah. that?
1: So it's it's super sad to watch. The I think that the Rasmussen's have an absolutely viable claim. They should they were dismissed. What I think is shitty about it is they were dismissed before they even got to go to trial. Like they couldn't even do discovery. They couldn't even figure out who that detective was that signed out the the evidence, who destroyed the hair sample. You know any of that stuff that you're just not even let into the. I mean you're let into the court, but you know you're not even allowed that access to try to see. It it just fails on them and says well procedurally sorry it was two years we don't like it but that's that's The Court of Appeal said it it happens this way sometimes, like this is the law. We have to apply it. We hate the result. Sorry. And so in my opinion, I think we should have laws that say the statute of limitations, whenever there's an underlying the case is the whole the whole creation of the case is because somebody hid something that then the statute starts on the date of discovery.
3: No, I think that makes sense. LAPD criminalist Jennifer Francis, who had discovered the lost swab, also tried suing the department. She alleged corruption regarding this case as well as the Hillside Strangler and the Grim Sleeper cases. In a 2019 trial, a jury found that Francis had suffered no harm and found in favor of the police department. In 2022, an appeals court upheld the jury's decision. Well, how shocking. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can't say I'm surprised by any of this. They're all going up against the LAPD. Yeah, in the city of Los Angeles and they're all in bed got, together.
1: Yeah, they got good attorneys. I think the you know the argument was well, she is suing because of this corruption, but she still and and she said, you know, I would bring up these facts from these cases, and I was told, don't look at that, don't worry about that, hide that, don't don't look into that. And she was saying that because of that, she felt like her career suffered. Well, the argument was that she was still promoted, she was still doing well, but that doesn't mean that there was no corruption. Right. I think she, I think she was just a real good criminalist and was just doing very well at her job and was getting promoted, but then also was pointing out this corruption, and so the. Again, it's like this tricky technicality of the law that like she couldn't show that she was harmed by bringing up this corruption. So therefore she lost in court. But I don't think that's that's not the same thing as saying there was no corruption. There was no issue. There was no harm. The people that are being
3: harmed aren't the ones that are in court.
1: Yeah, and she as the criminalist, she was the kind of the whistleblower, right? Like bringing mm-hmm. it up. But yeah, the the finding from the jury was like, do you think Jennifer Francis was harmed by this bringing up this corruption and they said, "Well, no, you know, she was promoted and whatever." And it may be that there's some sort of stigma that you're the one that's willing to, you know, advocate on behalf of the truth regardless of who it implicates. But I think for her, I'm like, "Well, uh, your case was up, your uh the loss at the trial court level was upheld on appeals. Write a book about like do, you know, get seek revenge somehow i mean she i mean the story's out there i mean she wants to get the story out there but i think those are huge cases the hillside strangler and the grim sleeper both so and she can show that there's this like pattern of issue i think even if she can't uh you know she can't uh win civilly i think she can at least shed light on yeah. it and she
3: has so far too. To ten- bring attention to it mm-hmm. stephanie lazarus is currently incarcerated at the california institute for women There is a tentative date for a parole suitability hearing scheduled for October 2023. So what do we think? Man, she's obviously um, a monster. And she was a monster that was allowed to walk free for uh, decades because of her position of power.
1: And it's you know great that she got convicted, great that she's in jail now. I think justice delayed though still is that she got to hook up with John in Hawaii. She got to adopt a daughter. She gets to go shopping at Costco with their daughter. She got to live her life. Um, Sherry's was cut
3: way short. Yeah.
1: Yes. Meanwhile, the Rasmussen's are gutted, absolutely Mm -hmm. devastated at the loss of their daughter. And to know Nels, day one, day one, he said. Talk to that lady cop Mm -hmm. and to get brushed off. Like I said, the uh, complaint in the civil case of how poorly the Rasmussen's were treated is incensing. I mean, it just makes you so angry. And again, I think that's the value of having a second set of eyes, a cold case unit, accountability. And because obviously we need detectives to solve murders. murders. We want that. But we want... Detectives that are willing to to be empathetic and listen to a family, listen, follow the evidence and not biased, of, not trying to not protect someone in
3: their own department.
1: Yeah. And say, like, my ultimate person that I'm protecting or the person I'm who, for whom I'm working is the victim here. Mm-hmm. And you see with Stearns and Jaramillo and Jennifer Francis, they did that when you get a crew like that that says we're here for the truth. And I think, I can't remember if it was Stearns or Harvey, but he's like, I got this binder, and it's just like, they gave me 50 binders, and I had to work my way one by one by one, and to sit there, you know, with a fine-tooth comb, go through it, and say... Hey partner, uh, this is implicating a police officer, and it's like, all right, well, let's. They did the right thing, like didn't you said. Shy they shy away used, from it, yeah. No, they didn't shy away, but they used code words. They didn't mention it out loud. They kept it locked in their office, you know, to to really try to preserve their investigation. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important that we have that. But Seventy Lazarus, I hate her. I mean, I just there's <laughs> she, I just she's not do. a likable
3: person. That is, I that's true.
1: This, the smugness, I hate the behavior on the front end. Of course, John's not completely with clean hands, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like we said, he should have shut it down, nipped it in the bud. But it's just heart-wrenching to watch this family. It made me think in some ways of like the Kristen Smart case where mm-hmm. for so long you have the cops going, oh, y'all are crazy. What are you talking about? Paul who? What do you mean? Whatever. And it finally took the new sheriff like 20 however many years later to go, no, I'm, I'm going to look into every single possible outcome and see. And then it's like the family was like, well, we knew from day one and we've been telling you. It's and no like it takes
3: someone far enough removed that mm-hmm. they're not going to personally be affected or ruffle feathers because they didn't Mm -hmm. know the person to come in and and clean up shop. And it it should never be like that. You shouldn't have to wait decades to get justice when the evidence from the beginning was showing you pretty clear cut what was going on here. And even if they couldn't test the bite mark for
1: DNA back then, I think there was other sufficient evidence finding her weapon, looking at the hair inside of the car, testing the fingerprints in the car and things like that, that I think could have
3: even though the dna was a slam dunk i think well, here's the question though if they had taken it to trial back then with dna not testing not being a thing do you think she would have been convicted i wonder if that's why whoever went in and wiped that file out because she might have been i don't whatever- think she would have had this gone to trial at the time of the murder i think i don't think she would have been convicted and then she would never have been in jail If that was her hair, I think she might have been
1: based on her pattern of behavior and how she was acting. And the journals existed at the time. Mm. If her hair was in there and if she had uh, some physical like, you know, because Sherry
3: fought. Yeah, they didn't ever look at her to know if she had any bruises or anything. Could you have taken her tooth impression? Yeah, I think with dental impressions, you could have matched that up for sure.
1: Things like that. Yeah. There's maybe, but you're right. It would not have been the slam dunk that it is now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the development of DNA testing was in the late 1980s, if you could at least, or if it would have degraded the sample so badly to just say like, oh, it was like type A blood or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. something, I don't know, or at least know it was a female.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they knew very, they knew not early on, but um, fairly quickly that it was a, a female and still push that narrative that it was uh two Hispanic men which is very um who was it that the mom that said she was missing yeah 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 Another, Yeah, it made me think yeah. of that as well yeah. i'm
1: just trying to scapegoat yeah uh, and
3: it's sad that of all you know i mean with these cases we're like oh yeah this reminds us of this case oh they blamed hispanic people just like this other case it happens so much that mm-hmm. we cover these cases and you see these Commonalities through all of it, and you're like, mm-hmm. "What?" It's very disheartening and can be overwhelming to be like, "Well, how does anything get <laughs> solved? How is how is justice ever served?" Because you know this seems to be kind much more common than it should be. Well, and I think that's a really good point. Is
1: that when you do see these commonalities, and we do feel disheartened about something, then I think taking from the commonalities, okay, then what policy mm-hmm. initiatives are we concerned about that could fix that? And like you said, it shouldn't take somebody a cold case detective 25 years removed from the case but maybe if you say okay well we have a policy this this is a new detective their only job is if anything isn't solved within a year he's the she is the fresh set of eyes mm-hmm. they're the fresh set of eyes that's going to look at this and just say that way it's not 25 years removed Mm -hmm. you know it's long enough that you've had time to investigate but clearly if you're not making any rounds you're overwhelmed there's new crimes coming in every day this is like a relief pitcher that's just going to come in and take a look i think there's probably some ownership and some emotional part of like what's my case i don't want anybody else to look at my case but you have to get your ego the fuck out of there because it's not about you it's about solving it keeping people safe and giving justice to these families Mm -hmm. so when you see that commonality of like oh it's similar to kristen smart or it's similar to sherry papini where you need that Third party set of eyes to go like, oh, I don't think it's those. Just because two Hispanic men did, you know, rob a house up the street, let's not pin this murder on them right. and then let a murderer walk free for thirty years. Yeah.
3: Yep, I agree with everything. Well, well, thank you to our Patreon yeah. uh,
1: subscribers of the getting into it tier for choosing this case. Um, it was definitely had a lot of elements in, in it that that uh, make for a. Fascinating case and also just a case study in what's going wrong and uh, what we can do
3: to fix it. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show.
1: As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, the August mini-sode is the TikTok conspiracy of Bebop and BB. and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and so much more. And patrons in the Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see us live stream. You are listening to this on Wednesday, August 31st. Our next live stream is tonight at 8 p.m. central we're doing a just no mil which is mother-in-law so it's uh horror stories about uh people's interactions with their mother-in-laws at 8 p.m. central august 31st from reddit
3: yes which always has the best stories you also have the fun perk of access to our discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime share personal ghost stories or just post adorable pictures of your pets We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions.
1: For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded
3: with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood
1: merch. Keep those pictures coming. I recently was wearing my Don't Tell Me to Calm Down racerback tank top, and I love it. The fabric is fantastic. very soft. And I feel like a bad bitch in it. And (laughs) you know what? I wear the shirt of the band I'm in. No shame. If you want some cool swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes
3: for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting SinisterHood.com slash playlist. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You
1: can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We are also on YouTube and TikTok. Y'all, I made a TikTok video. <laughs> we have two TikToks now. We have so two TikToks. Exciting. And every episode of the show is now on YouTube. If you like listening via YouTube, if you are listening on YouTube, hello, we love Thank you. Thank you. And I've been I did a YouTube short. I'm getting into it, y'all. I'm finding any pretty much any video footage we already have. I'm I'm being creative. So I'm very excited. I have another one I'm about to post. So it'll be up. By the time you hear this on Wednesday, go to YouTube and TikTok.
3: We're going to have a new TikTok. I'm nice. Excited. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on TikTok and Twitter at Christy or GTFO and I am on Instagram at Christy M Wallace. Heather,
1: I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and I am on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world.
3: As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.
1: Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Katie, Cynthia Hayes, Heather T.,
3: Janelle Amanette, Kara Sims, Aaron Roberts, Debbie Sampson, Brittany Sexton, Nicole Smith, Ashley Walker, Haley Heil, Marie L., Selena, Deanna, Melissa Rennert, Christina Embergia, Dak Crack, Misha Cullum, Stephanie Christensen, Sarah Nowak, Lauren Birch. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We hope you pronounce your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate all the love and support. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. (laughs) Sinister.
2: chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.